Acts chapter 12. Let me get there myself. I'm in Psalms for some reason here. Acts chapter 12. Now, you can write this down. As you know, I preach expository as we go through the Scriptures. Last week, I covered all of chapter 11, and today I'm going to cover all of chapter 12. It's the only time I've ever done that in covering back-to-back chapters in two messages. But it does cover one thing, as we're going to see here, just like chapter 11 did. And it's a transition, as we're going to be moving on from Peter's ministry into Paul's ministry here. And uh, so, Acts chapter 12, um, I'm going to go through this very quickly. I'm going to use the fact that I grew up in the Cleveland, Ohio area to read fast. All right. Now, about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And, and because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Uh, then were the days of unleavened bread. So it's Passover. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four uh, 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 quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. When Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and and keeper uh, and keeping before the uh, and keepers before the door kept the prison. Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind thy sandals. And so he did, and and cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. They went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. When Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath sent his angel and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews." When he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he beckoning unto them with his hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go show these things unto James. To the brethren. That would be the half-brother of the Lord, by the way. We dealt with that, who wrote the epistle of James, who is now the pastor at the church of Jerusalem. Uh, And he departed and went into another place. Now, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers. What was become of Peter? And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea in their abode. Now it picks up, he's in Caesarea. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon. And they came with one accord to him. And having made Blastus the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace. Because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. 
And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I ask your blessing upon the service today. Lord, I pray that you be glorified and honored. Lord, please work on our hearts. Draw us closer to you. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, control, again, what I say and how I say it. I pray that you be glorified and honored. Please work. If there's anyone here who has not truly been converted, Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing, that even today they repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most dangerous things that you can ever do in life is fight against God. Is choose to fight against Him. Matter of fact, we've certainly seen a rise in our culture of those fighting against God, a hatred towards Him, being, uh, from even being bitter and spiteful against the Creator. Men throughout all of history, for that matter, have tried to fight against God. They think they can win. It really is incredible to have that mindset that you have the capability to somehow fight against God and win. Let me give you some examples in history. Ernest Hemingway wrote on one occasion that biblical morality was not going to impose itself on his life, that he could act how he wanted to and succeed. Let me quote from him. He said, I am living proof that one can live any way he chooses and succeed. In an article that he wrote, I'm going to read from an article that he actually wrote. He said, I have fought in revolutions, I have tumbled women, I have satisfied my desires, and I stand as a living testimony to the fact that you can sin and get away with it. Ten years to the day he wrote that article. He committed suicide by putting a shotgun in his mouth and pulling the trigger. He thought he could fight against God and win. He was wrong. He could not take it. He could not take the emptiness of life. Just as we went through the book of Ecclesiastes not too long ago. When you try and find meaning in life apart from the Creator, it's simply not possible. The end will always be vanity. Sinclair Lewis, an extremely popular author at the turn of the 20th century. Um, of his day, he was the, the go-to author, if you will, in a secular sense. He wrote, a, his most famous book was written in 1926, called Elmer uh, Gantry. Now, what the author was known for was his mocking of God and his mocking of Christianity. He couldn't stand it. He used this book as a satire against it. It was turned into a movie in, 19, in 1960, actually. And the movie was pretty much vile as it was. It dealt with a, a, a drunk, lewd, immoral man who was the preacher. Just mocking the things of God. He won many prizes, literary awards, was considered a genius as a writer. What people don't know when you read a story is this about that man. He died, almost like what he wrote about, a nasty drunk. He died in a cheap alcoholic clinic somewhere outside of Rome. It was in obscurity. Again, his life ended in vanity. You cannot fight against God and win. You can't do it. We can think of, uh, of that French infidel Voltaire, writer back in the 1700s who often mocked God and Christianity, constantly fought against God. 
And we actually have recorded portions of, of his death that was written down of what happened. Let me read from what men wrote about when he died. It says, when Voltaire felt the, stroke that, felt the stroke that he realized must terminate in death, he was overpowered with remorse. He at once sent for the priest and wanted to be reconciled with the church. His infidel flatterers hastened to his chamber to prevent his recantation. But it was only to witness his suffering and their own. He cursed them to their faces as his distress was increased by their presence. He repeatedly and loudly exclaimed, Be gone! It is you that have brought me to my present condition. Leave me, I say, be gone. What a wretched glory is this that you have produced to me. Hoping to allay his anguish by a written recantation, he had it prepared, signed, and saw it witnessed. But it was unavailing. For two months he was tortured with such agony as led him at times to gnash his teeth with a rage against God and man. At other times, in in different accents, he would plead, O Christ, O Lord Jesus. Then turning his face, he would cry out, I must die abandoned of God and of men. Oh, in his heyday, he thought he could fight against God and mock it. You cannot fight against God and win. It's not possible. We have men in the Bible who try to fight against God. We can go to the book of Exodus. Uh, we can go to a lot of I can, go, I can go to Genesis. I can go to so many books in the Bible. But I think of Pharaoh attempting to fight against God. We see what it cost Pharaoh as, 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 as too, he refused to heed the words of Moses. It cost him his throne. It cost him his people. It cost him his honor. It cost him his son. And it cost him his life. You cannot fight against God. We can think of the king of Ai who decided to fight against God. He ended up hanging. We can think later on in the book of Joshua. The five kings with all their plots and trying to fight against God. All of them were killed and hanged together. The kings of the northern kingdom tried to fight against God. Jeroboam, Nadab, Asha, Eliab, Zimri, Amri, Ahab, Jehoram, Jehu, on and on and on. All of them tried to fight against God and died miserable deaths. Now we come to our text. Acts chapter 12, although there's much in here that we're going to see, it starts with Herod and it ends with Herod. Herod trying to fight against God. It simply is not possible. So often we can try and fight against God, the Creator, as if we know better. As if we think God doesn't know what we need or God doesn't know what's best for our life. We, we certainly don't fight God to the same extent as a man like Voltaire or Ernest Hemingway. But even in our own sense, with a refusal to deny self and actually believing that, that, that God wants to take something from you or hide something from you, or, or if you actually follow His will, there's just too much to give up. You're so wrong. Stop fighting against God. Listen, if you want that peace, stop fighting God. What is it the Lord has been working on your life about that you've been fighting with? Is it salvation? Surrender? Sacrifice? A personal issue that you've been dealing with? Something even leading to bitterness in your life? In Acts chapter 12, Herod attempts to fight with God. We see two truths in this text we're going to look at. Of why you should never fight against God. Number one, you will fail. Number two, it can be fatal. So let's dive into this. Number one, you will fail. 
You will not succeed when you attempt to fight against God. Look at the first couple of verses of chapter 12. Now, about that time, this is, that's referring to the time of this famine. That's referring to the time. Now, keep this in mind. Who else is present? Barnabas, as we left off chapter 11, Barnabas and Saul, who would be the Apostle Paul, have arrived. They're there for these events. At that time. So the famine is in place. They came to bring relief in the church at Antioch. Remember, as we finish chapter 11, that the church at Antioch, the very first Gentile church, has just exploded into the thousands. Barnabas, upon seeing all the converts, he goes and he finds Saul. He needs help. They, 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 they have for their first pastors was Barnabas and Saul. And they were able to meet in a single location. And we see the biblical teaching that they got for one year from these men. And think, at that time, it has been ten years since Saul was converted in Acts chapter 9. Ten years have passed. This man is ready to explode with the knowledge he has gained. Of his understanding now that Christ has given him personally from the Old Testament of what it all meant and all that Christ did on the cross. That church at Antioch is getting this teaching. And through that biblical teaching and that foundation, uh, they become a key church of the first century. And we saw last week the framework for a New Testament church of what it should look like. And so as we concluded, this famine hits, and they sent Barnabas and Saul. They head to Jerusalem with funds to help relieve because they were suffering. And so Herod... Referred to, he's, he's actually Herod the king. He's the only of the Herods that actually was given quite that title. This is Agrippa I. Let's look at who he was so you have understanding what's taking place here with this man. His grandfather was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was in control of Palestine um, when Christ was born. Herod the Great was the one who had all the children slaughtered. He was the one who was jealous when he heard a king was born. Wasn't going to have it. He was murderous. This Herod here... Herod Agrippa is his grandson. Herod Agrippa reigned over Palestine from 37 to 44 A.D. Now, when he was younger, around his teenage years, his mother had sent him to Rome to avoid his grandfather. His grandfather had murdered his dad and his grandmother. So, she gets him out of Palestine. She sends him to Rome. This would prove instrumental in his life, this move to Rome. While he's in Rome, he begins to surround himself and gets to know many of the elite who are there. He becomes close friends with a man named Gaius who would become emperor. Uh, Caligula is this friend. His name was changed when he becomes emperor. <clears throat> so when Caligula becomes emperor, he gave to his friend rule over part of Palestine, and he gave him title of king, the only of the Herods to have that title, actually. Caligula was murdered, and then Claudius, who is emperor at this time, takes over. That was usually the end of all the emperors. They were usually murdered. He is the emperor at the time of Acts chapter 11 and Acts chapter 12. When Herod the Great died, remember, he, he, he broke up his kingdom in three areas between, his, between three of his sons, Archelaus, Philip, and, um, and Antipas. Now, over time... With each of those three, something had happened. Archelaus was ended up getting banished for some events that had taken place. And the portion of Palestine that he ruled would be given to Agrippa. The same thing ended up happening uh, with 
which one was it? With, uh, Antipas, he gets banished. Philip is, is killed. And all their land was given to Agrippa. So for the first time since Herod the Great, you now have somebody who's in control of the same amount of territory. And that's who this man is. He was obsessed with this popularity. He wanted to be popular among the people. <clears throat> Especially those in the area of Judea and Samaria. His grandmother, who Herod the Great had killed, was of Jewish descent, if you remember that. She was actually in direct line from the Maccabees. So Herod, that family would be very well acquainted with Jewish tradition, Jewish law. They would understand it. So, to get the Jews on his good side, seeing the rise of the Christian movement, which is now in the thousands in Jerusalem, he decides to take steps. He goes after one of the apostles, a key apostle in James. And he has James murdered. He is killed with a sword. Even though persecution has been going, the fact that James, the brother of John, has just been killed would hit the Christians in Jerusalem very hard. It would be difficult to handle. It's interesting, James is the first of the apostles to die. His brother will be the last. Herod, seed, how much, Herod witnesses how much this pleases the Jews. And so as we read, he decides he's going after another one. But this time he's going after the key man, Peter. He wants to know who's in charge of it. He finds out. He has Peter arrested. But the timing's amazing. He has him arrested, but it happens to be the Passover week. He's certainly not going to have him executed the Passover week. He's doing this for popularity. He has nothing against Peter. He just wants to please uh, uh, um, the Jews. And so he determines the day after Easter. It's when, it's, as soon as basically the Passover ends, Peter is to be executed. That's the plan he puts in place. Let me read those verses again. It says in verse 4, And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four uh, quaterns of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. So we see what's taking place. Herod has them arrested. Um, Herod wants to make sure nobody breaks him out. He has 16 men guarding him with two soldiers that will be permanently chained directly to him in the actual cell. He is highly guarded. Herod cannot wait for his execution. In Herod's mind, he can stop Christianity. He's the man that's going to do it. You cannot fight against God. We have here, in verse number 5, the first of very important buts in this text. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Don't ever forget when you are going through any trial but God. Don't ever forget that. James has been killed. Clearly, he was a leader, one of the main apostles. And now the leader of the apostles is arrested. 
the church in Jerusalem goes to prayer. Serious prayer right here. The word without ceasing here is one word in the Greek. It's interesting. It means stretched out in anguish, intensity, and earnestness. It's dealing with the fervency with which they prayed. They are begging God to please do something. James is dead. Now they have Peter. We know from James 5.16, again, written by the half-brother of the Lord who became the pastor at the church at Jerusalem, who is pastor of the church at this time, wrote in James chapter 5, The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. He witnessed it this day. Those people praying are getting ready to realize that an earnest prayer before God availeth much. Now, what I find interesting here, I want you to think about this. This is very interesting. Is they are earnestly praying, but the truth is they have little faith. They do. They have little faith. Faith. But they're earnestly praying. Boy, there's a great lesson for us right there. As we know, I've already read, I'm, I'm going to jump the gun here a little bit. And I'm, I'm going to go back, but I want to get this out right now. They did not allow the little faith to dictate how they responded to God. They did not. They, uh, no, let me rephrase that. They did not allow the bigger portion of their doubt to determine how they followed God. They allowed the little faith. Even though it was just little faith, they still prayed earnestly. They didn't allow the doubt they had because you say, how do they have little faith? Because they're stunned when God answers their prayer. Listen, even if your faith is small, just go before the Lord. Pray. Pray and pray. Think of Christ's words, which to me, I remember how much they helped my prayer life. Uh, when the man prayed before Christ, said, Lord, I believe. Help mine unbelief. What they chose to follow was their little faith. That's what you do. Even if your faith is small, that's always what you follow. And in response here, we see God moves. Look at verse number 6 through 11. When Herod would have brought him forth the same night. So it's now, Peter's been in the prison for several days right now. But in the morning, it's time for the execution. It's going to happen. Herod can't wait. He's still in Jerusalem. I've got Peter. He's the leader of this movement. Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, bind down thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee and follow me. And he went out and followed him and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. And when they were past the first and second ward, they came unto the iron gate, which leadeth into the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out, passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety the Lord hath sent his angel to have delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all expectation of the people of the Jews. Amazing. 
Peter here in prison, locked away, two guards chained to him. He is well aware that in the morning he will be executed. He doesn't have to guess. He's going to be dead in 12 hours. He knows it. So what is he doing? He's asleep. I mean, he's really asleep, as we're going to see. He's out. It is incredible. Think about this. It shows his faith regardless of what happens. He knows James has just been put to death. He has every reason to expect that happen to him. But he's at such peace. Whatever happens, the Lord's in control. He's sleeping. He's sleeping as if there is no danger. It reminded me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Lord can deliver us, but if he doesn't, so be it. We're still not bowing down. Peter is chained to two guards. He's completely asleep. Now get this. I, I, I laughed when I was studying this this week. My mind went to different places. So, the angel gets the call. Go free Peter. You know the angel's excited. There's no question about it. And, and because when an angel, not all the times we're going to see in Scripture, but many times in this fashion when they come upon men, there's always the bright light. So the angel comes down. He's like, this is going to be good. The light hits the prison. I don't know about you, but I get up at that point. I'm waking up. The, the light filled the entire prison. Peter doesn't move. He's still asleep. He's so asleep, the Bible says the angel has to hit him on his side. Get up. The angel literally has to wake Get up, Peter. I mean, the guy's out. The angel raises him up, hits him, hits him on the side, raises him up. Peter, come on, wake up. At that moment, his chains fall off. Listen, that's something God can do. Whatever it is that's hindering you and keeping you down, the Lord can remove it. He tells Peter, get your outer garment on, get your clothes on, get your shoes on your feet, you follow me. Peter, at this time, thinks it's just another vision like he saw when he went to Cornelius. When God had sent him uh, to Cornelius. He, at this point, he's, he's, still, he's still half asleep. He's wondering if this is just a vision that's taking place. And then they walk right through the guard stations. They pass through each one. Then they come up on this huge iron gate. Peter's there, and the thing just opens up of its own accord. And of course, Peter is just amazed. They get out onto the street, and the angel just disappears. As is common, once the angels, every time scripture you see, once they finish their mission, they're gone. Nothing left to do. It's at this point Peter realizes what just took place. He is freed. Peter gets his wits about him, amazed at what God has just done for him, delivering from his execution that is hours away. And he decides to head to the closest church meeting place that they had in Jerusalem, is what I believe, when he chooses to head, uh, uh, head to Mary's house. He's going to head there and let them know what's taking place. Little does he know there's a massive prayer meeting taking place right there. I'm sure in many locations throughout Jerusalem that was happening. And this Mary, again, this is the mother of John Mark, who would be the brother of Barnabas. Now, keep in mind, Barnabas and Saul, they're in Jerusalem. It's very possible they're in this house. This is Barnabas' sister's house. 
Let's pick it up in verse 12. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. They said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then, uh, then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Let me stop right there. So he heads to Mary's house. By the way, John Mark, who's going to end up going back as we see chapter ends, John Mark goes back with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. Who would go on the first missionary journey we're going to see. Who's going to go back. He's going to quit on that journey. It's going to lead to the division of Barnabas and Saul where they part ways. But nonetheless, you see John Mark being restored and serving God so faithfully. It is thought, of course, that John Mark is the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark which we do believe is Peter's account of it, because, for several reasons, I'll give you just one because it deals with it in the book of First Peter. First Peter, uh, Peter refers to John Mark as his son, meaning a closeness in the relationship. But anyhow, Peter goes to Mary's house, he's knocking at the gate. Rhoda, by, by the way, which means it's the same name we have in English as Rosie. Rhoda is the one that goes to the door. She sees it's Peter standing at the door. She gets so... I mean, they're earnestly, fervently, with intensity, with agony, praying and beg God to work in the situation. In regards to Peter. She heads to the door. Peter, the apostle, is standing right there. She is so excited, she forgets to open the door. So Rosie here, Rhoda, run, runs back, and she's telling him, it's Peter! It's Peter! He's at the door! This is where you see their great faith! No, it's not. What's wrong with you, woman? You're crazy. And now she's trying to, and she's constantly, she's over, it is Peter! They don't even want to go check yet. It's Peter. It, it is! No, you're crazy! And then what they do on top of all of it, they create their own new theology. It must be his angel. They create a brand new theology out of the blue because of little faith. And so when they conclude a new theology, it must be his angel, let's go meet Peter's angel. They head to the door and they are astonished. It's Peter. They were so excited it causes an uproar right there. Peter's like, no, oh, no, no, he beckons. Stop. I just got out. I don't want to go back. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Calm down. And you could just imagine it's quiet, middle of the night. They're fervently praying. They got the neighborhood all around. They realize it's Peter, and all of a sudden the uproar hits at that house. And Peter, no, no, no. Peter comes inside, and he tells them what the Lord just did. Think what this would do. For the Christians there. I mean, they know when God is on your side, that's all you have to trust in. Regardless of what happens, whether God allows an execution to take place like He did with James, or God says, No, I'm intervening, like He did with Peter. 
What they learned was to trust God. And this is going to lead, and when we get into the conclusion, what happens here is going to lead to the church growing even more. Amazing what takes place here in Acts chapter 12. So often we can be so surprised when God answers our prayers. Again, I'm so thankful that if we'll simply use our little faith to still go to God earnestly, that He does respond. After our first furlough, the tickets for New Guinea were very expensive. So we're back on our first furlough, and we had paid over 12000 to get home, and, and just to get that money. That was amazing. Emptied the retirement, did everything to pay for the tickets to get home. And then I'm praying all, the entire time back in furlough, I need the money to get back. I don't have any money to get back. It's more than 12000 to get back. Just plane tickets. Not hotel costs and layovers, just purely the plane tickets. And I was at a church in small church outside of the Fort Bragg area. I think it's also Pope Air Force Base right in there. And uh, just a small church Sunday night preaching there. And they were a supporting church of mine. It was sweet. They, they, they had been preparing for me to come for months. What they had all their children come up and do with different of the prayer letters. It was amazing. And so service is over. We had a really good service. I'm in the back in the four-year era talking with several of the men of church. And I'm getting ready to leave. And one of the men had asked about wanting to come to New Guinea. I said, well, I'd love to have you all come. So he asked, well, how much does it cost? And I gave him the ticket. And then another man said, he goes, man, you got five kids. There's two of you. He goes, that's expensive. I said, oh, it'll cost me more than 12000 to get back. I didn't think anything of that conversation. Left, went on. It's, that was the last Sunday in October of 2007. First Sunday of December that same year of 2007. I'm preaching in Tennessee Sunday morning, Georgia on Sunday night. I just finished the morning service in Tennessee. I'm traveling to the next meeting, and my stop where you should always stop is the McDonald's. So I stop at McDonald's, I'm eating lunch, and I get a call from that little church. I mean, small church. The pastor's on the phone, he's so excited. He said, listen, I want you to know, we have raised the $12,000 for your return tickets. I couldn't believe it. Even though I prayed about it every day, I was in shock. I just couldn't believe it. And then I thought, it's Christmas time. I think of how those few families, what they had to sacrifice... To make that take place. To raise 12000 in four weeks is what they did. Amazing. And the pastor even said, and if your tickets are more, please, we want to know. We want to cover every penny of your cost. <clears throat> so often when God does work, we are amazed. Even though I had doubt, I was still praying about it every day. Lord, we need the funds to get back. And usually the way God chooses to answer it, that's usually what produces the all. That's what he wants in your heart and in your mind. When he does choose to answer, you're just like, wow. Like with twins. Wow. He enjoys doing that. Trust him. The fact is, though, if you're fighting God, you'll never see that. Do you understand that? That won't take place. As we see here, with Herod's attempt to fight against God and stop this Christian movement, he failed. Peter was delivered. What he was trying to accomplish was over with. He's even going to leave and head to Caesarea. He's so disappointed. 
Listen, the fact is, if you fight God, you will fail. It doesn't matter how strong your fight is. It's going to fail. Your end will be bitter. Your end will be regret. Your end will be failure. Listen, don't fight against God. Follow Him. It's always the right decision. Teenager, don't fight against God when you're making major decisions for your life. There's nothing greater than following Him. Allow Him to determine your direction. And then secondly, this one's much shorter than the first point. It can be fatal to fight against God. As we come through, we see here with Herod. Herod is furious. The soldiers, there is no small stir. Herod has them examined has them executed in verse 19, verse 20. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre. And I'll, I'll get into what's going on here in just a second. So I don't, but they came with one accord to him. And having made uh, Blastus, the king's chamberlain, their friend, desired peace, that their country was nourished because, uh, because their country was nourished by the king's country. Remember, there's a famine going on at this time. And, and uh, upon a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory and was eaten of worms and gave up the ghosts. A few important things to look at here when it comes to fighting against God. One, the main thrust here can be fatal. So Herod hears that Peter has escaped. He's furious. This was to be a great day for him. Just really a, a tremendous rise in his popularity among the Jews. Turned into a day of failure. He sends out a search party to find Peter. He tells the Roman guards, find him. They can't find him. He examines the guards as to what took place. No doubt, Herod had to believe it was an inside job. I don't think they're going to believe the guards. We are frozen. We have no idea how the the iron gate opened. And and it was common, anyhow, to have the same fate if a prisoner escaped. And so, anyhow, they're all executed. He then heads to Caesarea. The story then picks up several months later. This would have been around April, April, May when he left, of course. And now it's August. And I'll explain how I know that here in just a second. So it's a few months later. Um, it deals with a, uh, a disagreement he has with Tyree and Sidon, two Phoenician seaboard cities. Um, and they had... We don't, we don't know exactly what happened to cause a disagreement, but nonetheless, they have a, a necessary need here to make amends with King Herod because of the famine. They need food. So they send representatives there. It deals with this. There's going to be much more than them present because this event, which it just speaks to... The Word of God is amazing. I'm also going to read... You think of what we just read. And I'm going to read to you from Josephus who records the same event that took place. He's not a Christian. He's a Jewish historian. <clears throat> so these men come pleading for help. There's, there's a lot going on at this time. It's a busy time. Caesar himself has just returned from Britain safely. It also happens to be his birthday, which is how we know the timing of this of August 1st. Herod decides to his people, in honor of these events, he's going to give a political speech. Many would be there, including those men who had traveled in, but from Josephus we know there was a large crowd that had gathered. So he's there for this event on day two. He's going to give a speech. 
he comes up to this ascended, elevated location, this not like a throne throne, but that's almost what you could picture with it here. And he's in this robe made of silver. Josephus says that it shone in the sun and flashed and it glittered. Um, I'm going to read, actually, and if you want to know the exact part of his books, which one this is written in, I have that for you. But I'm going to read his account. Again, this is a Jewish historian, not a Christian. He said, now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city, Caesarea, which was formerly called Stratos Tower, and there he exhibited shows in honor of Caesar upon him being informed that there was a certain festival celebrating to make vows for his safety. At which festival a great multitude was gotten together of the principal persons and such as were of dignity throughout his province. So he brings leaders and key men and wealthy people from all over to come hear him. On the second day, which shows he put on a garment made holy of silver. He put on the garment made holy of silver and a wonderful contexture and early in the morning came into the theater place of the shows and games. At which time, the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the first reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone after a surprising manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently on him. So he comes out. He has this special garment made. The bulk of it is silver. And so when the sun hits it, it's just uh, spectacular to see. And then he speaks. He gives this great speech. And people begin to praise him and worship him, giving glory to him. Actually saying, it it is the voice of, of a God and not of man. Herod loves it. Josephus actually gives us quotes of what the people were saying that day when he spoke. This is what Josephus said they said. And presently his flatterers cried out from one place and another and from another. He said in parentheses, but though not for his good, that he was a God. And they added, be thou merciful unto us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a king, yet shall we henceforth own thee as a superior to mortal nature, as a God. He didn't refuse that. He hears the cries coming out. He takes from God's glory and the Lord sends the angel of the Lord to smote him. And Josephus talks about that. This guy collapses. Josephus records it took him five days to die. That he died this miserable death. You know what he realized in those five days? I think that was on purpose. You can't fight God. You can't. You can't fight Him. It's not possible. Ask Hemingway. Ask Voltaire. Ask Ahab. He is God. It will fail... And it most certainly can be fatal. When we tend to fight God, it's usually when something goes against our desire. Listen, remember, God loves you. He knows what is best. He really does. When you fight God, listen, you know what happens? I'm going to put this in place for ours. You lose perspective. When you make that choice, you're going to fight against God. You lose complete, proper perspective on who you are and who God is. 
you elevate yourself too much when you choose to fight God. Forgetting He is God. And who you are. And you choose to fight against Him? How dare you fight Him? How dare you lose sight of His mercy and His grace and His love? How dare you question what He deems best when He is God and He is good? And then in 24 and 25, look at the result of all this. He tried to stop God. He tried to fight against God. Verse 24, the opposite took place. But the word of God grew and multiplied. This is the second key but of this chapter. Peter's, James is killed, Peter's in prison, but prayer was made. And then here, but the word of God grew and prevailed. The Lord just turned everything around. It began to strengthen the church. The word of God grew. Think about that. At this time, as, you know, as the teaching and instructing is going on and the things of God and His Word, understanding is being enlightened. I get it. I see it. Herod did not win. He failed. He thought, I'll gain in popularity. Again, pride driving that and pride driving his speech. But he failed. And it very much proved fatal. And two men were there to witness all these events. Barnabas and Saul. Once these events conclude, they head back. And they're getting ready to start world missions. We'll continue that when we get into chapter 13, starting next week. With heads bowed and eyes closed.